Tonight on Farage, as six new licenses are given up for gas and oil exploration in the North Sea, I'm asking, is this a step in the right direction against net zero madness? The Jimmy Savile row goes on, and the Speaker of the House of Commons issues something of a rebuke to the Prime Minister. Isn't this all a little bit over the top? Because I think it is. And joining me tonight on Talking Pines, a man of Formula One motor racing fame from the 1970s, Lord Alexander Heskin. Good evening. Well, one thing for certain that Boris Johnson really does believe in is net zero by 2050. It really has been the one policy that he's championed throughout his prime ministership. He took great joy, of course, in chairing the G7 and talking about these issues. And it seems to me it's accompanied by a boast. And the boast is that since 1990, we as a country have reduced our CO2 output more than any other Western country. And we're proud of that. Well, what, I'll tell you how we've done it. We don't bother to make all of our own coal mines in this country and use our own stuff. No, we import four and a half million tonnes a year. Similarly, with gas, despite huge gas reserves, we import about 50% of it. And the same, increasingly, over the last few years, has gone for oil. We've seen our steelworks close down and move to India. We've seen refining going. We've seen chemical production going. And then we simply import the products back into the country, convincing ourselves we're saving the world by reducing our CO2. Actually, we're doing no such thing. But I thought the announcement overnight that six licences are going to be issued for development of gas and oil fields in the North Sea was really interesting. Interesting particularly because the instruction came from number 11 Downing Street. And of course, there is a mounting level of speculation about splits between number 10 and number 11. Perhaps Rishi Sunak has woken up to the reality that actually leaving ourselves vulnerable for all of our energy on the rest of the world and very often on regimes that aren't particularly nice isn't a very clever thing to do. So tonight I'm asking you, is this the right step? Is this an outbreak of common sense? Please let me know what you think. Farage at gbnews.uk. Alternatively, perhaps you think it's all wrong and we should stop using fossil fuels completely. Not that that really would be very practical. Well, joining me to discuss this is Angela Knight, former CEO of Energy UK and a friend of this programme. Angela, good evening. Good evening. So recently we saw money that was going to go into the development of a Cambo oil field. That money was withdrawn. Yeah. The, the SNP government in Scotland have now, for some bizarre reason, become anti-oil, even though for decades they've told us it was their means by which they pay for everything. Was this announcement pushed onto Kwasi Kwarteng from the Chancellor of the six new licences that are going to be issued? Was it a surprise to you? Uh, it was a surprise, but at the same time, realism has been dawning. I think across uh, government and indeed across parliament and uh, Westminster Whitehall generally, that we've got to really think through this energy policy. You can't just switch off our traditional means of uh, electricity. You can't just uh, import off the wholesale world international market for gas and everything's going to be all right. We have to look at our own self-sufficiency. 
And for some time, a number of people, and I'm going to hold my hand up and say, and I've been joining them, uh, have been saying, look, we can probably get more out of the North Sea. And if we can, we should. And I also think that we need to uh, look properly as well at fracking, because even if we don't ever actually use fracked gas, it still gives us a strategic reserve. And right now, what we, sh what we need is a strategic reserve. We cannot rely on imported electricity through interconnectors, and we cannot re rely on imported gas to the extent that we have been doing with both and to the extent which we you know, will be increasingly doing. So a rethink of energy policy, a rethink of what we should be doing here at home, I think has uh, really registered with government. Well, I hope that this is a symptom of that. And of course, Angela, as the price of gas goes up and the price of oil is now quite steadily above $90 a barrel, of course, there were large parts of the North Sea that would have been uneconomic a year or two ago. Yes. Uh, you know, that now can be accessed and can be resourced. I'm with you on that. But something else I saw today in the energy news that I thought was rather more concerning, and it's the announcement that UK households will be paid to use less electricity during peak periods. And perhaps mm. when it comes to electric cars, when it comes to heat pumps, which, of course, can use quite a lot of electricity, perhaps there's a realisation now that we're just not going to be able to produce enough electricity with our current resources and that through the smart meters, which companies are now pushing upon people really quite aggressively, um, I, you know, I get written to every six or eight weeks to say I must have a smart meter installed. I mean, I must have been, I just throw it in the bin. But are we not heading towards a point where through smart meters we could finish up with our electricity being rationed at peak periods? You could, but I actually think that this is that there's there's a little more um, substance to this than than you've said, if I may be so bold, Fine. Uh, Nigel. Um, the the whole question of 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 electricity use and it being at different prices at different times of the day is by no means no means new at all. I mean, do you remember Economy Seven? And do you remember that you know you could uh, switch on your your what were your your cumbersome, not very good well-working night storage heaters at night because your, your power was cheap and then, you know, it was supposed to work during, uh, heat you up during the day. And to a certain extent, some of that worked. So the idea of having different tariffs at different times of day is not new. If we fast forward this to today, well, since smart meters started, there has always been as part of the proposition that you as a consumer could pay less for your electricity if you said right at the peak times, I'm prepared, you know, not to uh, use the power to the same extent as would be normal. And that's usually at the start of the day, particularly Monday to Friday, because that's when uh, industry starts up. And it's also at the evening. As to how feasible it is, I simply do not know. And this trial will give us some idea of it. Um, I, I, like you, you know, one worries that if we stick where we are at the moment, then clearly there's going to be a shortage of power. And you could be rationed. But as I, you know, go back to what I said yeah, at the well, start, I think has dawned. And therefore, is there something sensible here? Yes or no? Give it a trial and let's find out. Well, maybe I'm just a bit more suspicious uh, than you are. Naturally, yeah. Angela, it is easy very to be suspicious. Much in... 
<laughs> Thank you very much indeed for joining us on the programme. And let me know your thoughts on this. Is this a step in the right direction, the issuance of these six licences? Farage at GBnews.uk. Now, last night, shortly before we went on air, we saw the scenes of Sir Keir Starmer uh, being somewhat mobbed in the street and being taken into a police car and taken away. And quite predictably, quite predictably, we saw the newspapers this morning and indeed, uh, as I was coming in to London early in the car this morning, I was listening uh, to Radio 4's Today programme. Uh, and you would think that Boris Johnson, by referring to Jimmy Savile uh, and Sir Keir Starmer's role in the Crown Prosecution Service, you would genuinely think that Boris Johnson had actually incited violence. Uh, I was astonished by the attitude that was taken this morning by uh, the BBC. And it's carried on, indeed, into the House of Commons. And I was very surprised to see the Speaker of the House of Commons, Lindsay Hoyle, say this. I really was... Well, the Prime Minister's words were not disorderly. They were inappropriate. As I said then, these sorts of comments only inflame opinions and generate disregard for the House, and it is not acceptable. Our words have consequences, and we should always be mindful of that fact. Well, I'd had enough of Radio 4, so I switched over on DAB to GB News, because you don't just need to watch GB News now. You can listen to it in the car, in the kitchen, or wherever you are. And I'm really pleased to say that GB News is political correspondent. I thought this morning got it pretty much bang on right. Tom Harwood joins me now. Tom, you gave this a sense of balance that nobody else seemed to do. Namely, that those people that surrounded Keir Starmer weren't just talking about Jimmy Savile. And they weren't even out looking for Keir Starmer. These were people who initially turned up at the start of the day outside number 10. We've seen their literature. We've seen their posters advertising the event. This was a protest against vaccines. It was a protest against number 10 and against the opposition. And if you looked at the placards of the cards uh, that they were holding, not a single person had a placard against Keir Starmer. These were people who turned up, had a, several placards against Boris, yep. several placards against this government and against COVID restrictions and vaccines in particular. But these were people who turned up to Westminster to, to have a protest and then hung around Westminster, as so many protesters do. You and I have been in Westminster well, for a very long time. And have we see, we've seen the these people hang around? Weeks, for the last few weeks, Tom, they're there every day. Oh, absolutely. I mean, quite what Keir Starmer was doing walking along the street is beyond me when there's a tunnel mm. that he but, could have gone. But listening to some of this media today, mm. some broadcast media and some newspapers as well, mm. you'd think that these were people who were set about to find Keir Starmer, to seek him out and to accuse him of scurrilous activity to do with Jimmy Savile. Yet, if you actually listen to the videos, and there are plenty of videos of this incident yeah. readily available to see online, it sounds like there's only one person who mentions anything to do with Jimmy Savile. This was a mob of people, many of whom seemed to be pretty unsavoury people, who turned up to protest the government and the opposition, who were in large majority anti-vaxxers, who believe in some wacky conspiracy theories from a new world order to something about the Magna Carta being um, overriding a vaccine rollout. I mean, the, the Magna Carta was annulled by Pope Benedict, by, by one of the popes a year after it was, a, it was initiated in 1215. Well, if we really want to get into it... Well, some of its principles have stayed with us. Oh, oh, and, 
I'm sure, and, and actually, the, the, the <laughs> point of the Magna Carta really, it, it should be more important yeah. than it is. Yeah. But really, if we get into what these people were shouting about, they were shouting majoritarily yeah. about Julian Assange. Yeah. They were shouting Freemasonry. about Freemasonry. They were shouting about all of order. these things. Name any conspiracy and or yet, any cause. And yet, I mean, Sir Lindsay Hoyle, who I, I, I think you'd agree with me, has brought a great degree of dignity to the job of speaker, mm. in marked contrast to some predecessors. We'll leave it at that for now. <laughs> but that was a rebuke to the Prime Minister. I mean, and we've got us... I mean, you would have thought that Johnson had ins mm. literally incited violence. I, I'm, 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 Tom, I'm astonished, but mm. you've called it out and called it right. Now, I must, while you're here, talk about the mini-reshuffle yes. that took place today. Quite interesting. Uh, firstly, Jacob Rees-Mogg, who, of course, very prominent... Uh, Brexiteer, uh, had become a very popular figure in the country. Suddenly, he was parked off as leader of the House of Commons. He sat in that chair mm. uh, doing talking pints with me a few months ago, brought his own cider in. Wouldn't necessarily recommend it. I've had some of his own cider <laughs> it's, well, it's at one of his Christmas parties. They're brilliant. <laughs> it's he should sell them. He really should. <laughs> but Jacob now, a new position, you know, mm. minister for Brexit, for seizing the opportunities of Brexit. Mm. Suddenly, Jacob becomes a high-profile politician again, doesn't he? It's interesting. He's had quite an inward-facing role over these last few years. Leader of the House of Commons is an important role, but it's pretty perfunctory. It's about business of the House. It's answering when debates should be and what gets approved and all this sort of uh, nitpicking sort of stuff. Yeah. This seems like it will be a more substantive role. It's one of these things that the Prime Minister promised his backbenchers at that 1922 committee meeting yeah. a couple of weeks ago, saying that this needs to be a government... That that's doing things. And I think behind all of the nonsense about Partygate... Has it taken him two and a half years to work that out? Well, I think this, is, this was a criticism of many people, actually, yeah. well before all the stories about parties. You've won this enormous historic majority this Thatcher-style majority, and yet this wasn't a government that was doing very much that could be comparable mm. to Mrs Thatcher at all. And potentially, it, what's needed is someone who is singularly focused on finding the opportunities that Brexit provides, on rolling back the frontiers that Europe imposed upon Britain. Because yeah. it does seem to me that in a lot of these areas, and potentially this was a, a, a large oh, part of Lord Frost's resignation as well, in a lot ball. of these areas no, it's they been dropped. dropped. The ball. They dropped the ball. And I think there are millions of self-employed people out there and businesses and entrepreneurs that feel that very strongly, not to mention trade deals with America and much else. Tom, thank you for that. Keep up the good work. That was terrific this morning. It really... Really was. Made me proud to be here at GB News. It genuinely did. In a moment, we'll have a look at what the increase in national insurance is going to do for the living standards of our hard-working nurses. So has Rishi Sunak made the right decision in issuing six licences for oil and gas in the North Sea? Your response is, Phil says... If the government are going to break another promise, they might as well go the whole nine yards and dig up all the fossil fuels we are sat on and scrap the green levy on energy bills. Well, I certainly agree with scrapping the levy on energy bills. And I'm going to put this to you, and perhaps many will howl with outrage at the very suggestion I'm about to make. As we're importing four and a half million tonnes of coal every year, wouldn't it make sense to open that pit in Cumbria, where there's big local support for it opening. Why do we have to import coal from all over the world if we're going to use coal, and we still need it 
in the steel industry. Why not mine it ourselves? Gosh, I'm sorry, some people would hate that. Another viewer says, we need it, so surely it's more environmentally friendly to get it locally than ship it in from miles away. Of course it is. That's absolutely right. Similarly, rather than, you know, the steelworks at Redcar closing and that steel now being made in India under lower environmental standards and then the product being shipped back here, that actually increases the amount of CO2. The whole thing is crackers. Colin says, definitely, even if we are trying to phase it out, there is strong money to be made exporting the stuff, and that is a good thing for our perpetual trade deficit. Interesting point. Stuart says, producing our own is always the right decision. Be independent and beholden to no one. Jim says, if you want energy security in these uncertain times, what else could he do? Yeah, it does appear to be, it does appear to be, a rare outbreak of common sense and a very good thing. I'm sure it won't put Boris Johnson off this pursuit of net zero, expensive heat pumps and all the rest of it. But it's at least a little bit of good news. Now, Open Democracy produced a report overnight saying that the health and social care levy costs, namely the increases in national insurance, will cost the average nurse an extra £275 a year. And I do wonder, after this period of time, after the pandemic, when the nurses and doctors and others in the NHS have been very much in the front lines of this, when we're encouraged from Downing Street and elsewhere, we were last year, to go out and clap for carers, clap for those working in the NHS. I wonder whether it actually feels good to nurses that they're going to get basically uh, pretty much stung in the wallet. I also wonder... Has nurses' pay fallen behind in the last few years? Well, joining me now to discuss this is Dr Peter Carter, former chief executive of the Royal College of Nursing. Peter, good evening. Good evening, Nigel. This looks like, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but this looks like a bit of a kick in the teeth. It is a kick in the teeth. Um, when the hike was announced in national insurance, one of the things the prime minister said was this would enable us to pay nurses and other health workers um, more money. Um, and what is quite clear from this report, and some of us have known it for some time, this is going to cost already poorly paid nurses. And I do stress um, doctors, radiographers, porters, domestics, and people in the social care setting, it's going to cost them a lot of money. And if you're only on just 20 odd thousand pounds, 275 pounds is a big, big pay cut. And the other thing which you touched on in your introduction, um, at the time of the banking crisis, um, there was a pay freeze in the public sector. I actually supported that. I thought that was the right thing to do. country was in a bad way. But it went on for far longer than we ever could have anticipated. So people have had a major cut in their salaries over the last decade. And this is a further kick in the teeth. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, to those on 20, 25,000 a year, it won't be as much as 275 pounds a year. It'll be, you know, 150, that sort of order. Well, it's the, the, the average nurse, it will be £275. Yeah, so yeah, I, yeah. I agree. No, I, 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 absolutely, I absolutely get that. I understand that. I, I mean, do you genuinely think, because there was a period a few years back when there was a big readjustment of nurses' salaries. Have they fallen behind again? Nigel, definitely. I, 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 look, um, the last decent pay rise 
was in 2008. This isn't about self-aggrandizement, but myself and Dave Prentice negotiated that directly with Alan Johnson when he was Secretary of State. And it was 8%, and that was a good pay award. Come along 2010, the government then froze the wages. I said that was the right thing to do. And that's gone on. Now, they've now had a 3% pay rise, but the overall cut in their wages is 12.5%. So another £275 on average with that is another step backwards. And if I can go on to say, I know that the critics will say, we've got £2 trillion worth of debt, and that's absolutely true. But that's not going to be paid off in your lifetime, Nigel, or in my lifetime. And a, a decent pay award would make a tiny yeah. impact on that £2 trillion. But by golly, it would reward the hardworking health and social care staff that have done so much during this pandemic. I think there is an argument, actually, Peter, to, to, to regard much of that national debt rather like the war debt. You know, it was built up in very exceptional circumstances. And that debate, I think, is one we're going to have over the course of the next few months. Now, even more alarmingly, uh, for the broader population, were the comments, delayed comments, that we got from Health Secretary Sajid Javid in the House of Commons today. And this is what he had to say about NHS backlogs. There is now a considerable COVID backlog of elective care. 1,600 people have waited longer than a year for care before the pandemic. The latest data shows that this figure is now over 300,000. On top of this, the number of people waiting for elective care in England now stands at 6 million. That is up from 4.4 million before the pandemic. Sadly, Mr Speaker, this number will continue rising before it falls. A lot of people, understandably, stayed away from the NHS during the heights of the pandemic, and the most up-to-date estimate from the NHS is that that number is around 10 million people. Wow, Peter Carter. Six million on the waiting list for NHS procedures. And that's bad enough, but we knew about that figure. But I thought what Sajid Javid said, there are 10 million people waiting to be seen, waiting for some form of diagnosis, many of whom will be, or some of whom at least, will be added to that list of six million. This is... This is a pretty desperate situation, isn't it? It is. It's a very desperate, very serious uh, situation. Uh, I predict it will go up by several million. It won't be tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands. And hold me to that and bring me back here next year if you want me to. Um, And, of course, the longer people are on those waiting lists, the more their existing conditions, for many of them, will deteriorate. That will then lead to more complex surgery, more longer stays in hospitals, more delayed discharges, um, and the downward spiral will go on. So getting back to where we started this, now would be a good time to reinforce the need to support our health service staff in order to address something which is going to be with us for the next many years to come. Um, In preparation for this, I had a look at the figures last year, and um, 13,945 nurses took themselves off the register last year. Wow. Now, that will be for a whole range of reasons, uh, but we know we've got 50,000 vacancies. 
The government are committed to, uh, to have 50,000 more nurses by 2024, but losing 13, maybe nearly 14,000 a year is not a healthy state of affairs. So that pressure on the health service, and I apologize to my colleagues in other disciplines, I don't have those figures to hand, but I understand there's a similar attrition rate in those other disciplines. This is not good. So this would be the time for the government to say, look, we've got to rethink this national insurance hike because what we now need to do is get right behind our health and social care staff because, boy, we're going to need them. But even if, I mean, I, 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 I absolutely take the point that you've made, but even if we had a national health service uh, full of highly motivated people who were happy, I, I mean, <coughs> 6 million plus 10 million, I, I mean, we're talking about 25% of the population in some way yeah. that needs something from yeah. the NHS. How on earth are we ever going to be able to deal with this? Well, it's going to take years, uh, and that's the sad reality. And we've got an ageing population. Um, our health indicators are not good. We have some of the most obese uh, people in Western Europe, yeah. very high rates of coronary heart disease, cancers. Um, you know, we fall way behind the comparable countries. Uh, we've underinvested in scanners. We have one of the lowest ratio of scanners in comparable countries. And now there's going to have to be catch up. But the sad reality, it is going to take years. And the government would wow. be better to be frank about that and work with the health service in order to find a way forward. Well, Dr. Peter Carter, can I just say uh, thank you for your blunt honesty, but it's a pretty worrying and depressing situation that we face. Thank you. Well, and, and thank you for covering this story. No, thank you. There you are. Another story, a What the Farage story. So yesterday I talked to you about Guito Harry, he of Take the Knee, he of not wanting Brexit, he of being totally relaxed about illegal immigration and much else. But I did, of course, talk about his links with the Chinese company Huawei. Well, some more news broke overnight, mostly down to the Sun newspaper. And it tells us that on the 2nd of June in 2020 there was a 25-minute telephone conversation between Guito Harry, who was working for a firm called Hawthorne, who were lobbying for the Chinese tech giant Huawei. Um, we understand that Huawei executives were also on the call, and the call was with, at the time, the chief of staff in number 10 Downing Street, Eddie Lister, Sir Eddie Lister. Uh, and Lister said uh, during the call that Mr Johnson, the Prime Minister, did not want to ban the firm, despite its links to the regime, but felt caught. Caught be between what uh, the Americans were saying about Huawei, the Australians were saying about Huawei, and what some of his own backbenches were saying about Huawei. But everybody was reassured that Boris Johnson is a Sinophile. Now, uh, this man who has worked very, very closely, Gideon Harry, uh, you know, with this arm of the Chinese government, and that's what Huawei are, uh, seriously implicated in, in suggestions of spying. And Ian Duncan Smith and one or two others have asked a question, and I think a very sensible question. Whilst no one doubts that the phone call that took place in 2020 was legitimate legally, but has Guito Harry been fully security cleared before taking on that job in number 10 Downing Street? We'll wait 
for the answer. And my other what the farage moment today, um, and this is one that is pretty extraordinary, it is that over the past weekend of sport, ITV have decided to change their Man of the Match award. Yes, it is now Player of the Match, and England captain Harry Kane was among those athletes, and he was given Player of the Match, not Man of the Match. I find the whole thing absolutely blooming ridiculous. It's enough to drive you to drink. Thank goodness Talking Pints is coming up soon. Now, before we go to that, one or two more of your reactions to this story of the six new licences being issued in the North Sea for exploration of oil and gas. Anthony says it's the right decision. We should also be fracking to ensure our supplies. I agree. Another viewer says on Twitter, yes, we need a shell gas revolution now, like they had in North America. Here, here, they enjoy far lower energy prices than us. And whenever I raise this, I'm told, oh, no, 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 Nigel, it, it, it'll make no difference because of world markets. Well, in America, their gas is half the price that it is here. Think on that. Audrey says it's a step in the right direction, but I wonder how long it will take them for them to become operational. Well, it may take a little bit of time, but hey, it is the right step. Another says, a good start. Now let's allow fracking. Mining coal again. There we are. Someone supports me. In a moment, I'll be joined by Lord Alexander Hesketh on Talking Pines. We'll talk to him about his career in politics, but in particular, his relationship with James Hunt and Formula One motor racing. It's that time of the day, thank goodness. The GB News pub is open. It's Talking Pints. I'm joined by Lord Hesketh. Alexander, welcome. Nigel, pleasure and privilege to be here. Good to see you. Now, I've only got about 14 or 15 minutes to talk to you, but your life has been so interesting and so full of ups and downs, we could pursue this for much, much longer. But what is it that makes a member of the aristocracy run away from school at 15 and become a second-hand car dealer? Well, uh, experience the educational process that, um, in terms of interest, that I think an awful lot of people at school, wherever they went to school, suffered. Well, did you just hate school? No, I, I got bored. I was bored out of my mind. Yeah. Yeah. Simple as that. So off you go. I was a useless student. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and uh, I tried to join the army. But I got failed by a retired medical officer of the Pioneer Corps. Um, and my mother was horrified. Uh, so I went to America. Before which I was also briefly a second-hand car dealer. Right, OK. So second-hand car dealing led you into a form of entrepreneurship and, and, and you were off to America and Hong yeah. Kong. And, and did you enjoy the business world? I enjoyed America and Hong Kong because there was a freedom of thought, uh, a complete lack of structure in the way that it existed. This is, we're talking about the 70s. We're talking about a Britain which really had an awful lot in it that was still the Second World War, uh, particularly in terms of taxation, mm. the opportunity to do what you wanted to do, the chance to get on, uh, the opportunity to raise money, virtually non-existent, unless you put your house on the line, with your local bank, and that was all you could do. And <clears throat> I found America a tremendously opening experience to how to think. And in Hong Kong, um, people are sometimes rude about the civil service, but it's important to remember 
one civil servant created the structure in Hong Kong, a man from the colonial office, as it was in those days, which transformed it into one of the economic powerhouses of the world, which has now been destroyed by communism. Yeah, I mean, it's desperately sad, isn't it, to see what's happened to Hong Kong? That's sad and outrageous, actually. Yeah, they've broken the deal, haven't they? Of course they have. I mean, that deal was signed in good faith. Uh, until 2047, Hong Kong was going to have autonomy, but none of it. No, it is sad. And, and, and I get your point, because in the 70s, there was the brain drain from yeah. this country. This was a very restrictive, outdated country. It was tough to get on and do things. And yeah. a lot of people went all over the world, as you did, yeah. uh, to do things. But, of course, you know, the, the thing that people are always going to know you for, above all, is motor racing, Hesketh motor racing. And still, years on... At Formula One, your teddy bear logo can be seen on people's shirts. And, I mean, was it madness? Was it, here it is, Hesketh, Hesketh Racing. Was it madness to go for Formula One, looking back on it? Uh, well, first, it, <clears throat> I didn't go for Formula One. Um, no, of course. I had a friend who took me to a barn outside Guildford to see a Formula Three car that he, he was... Um, having built. I mean, it was a real... It was, it was surrounded by straw bales. I mean, it was as cheap a car as you could build. Take it from me. <laughs> um, it didn't work very well, and he discovered that Formula 3 had become quicker than when he'd last been in it. And I turned up at a place called Chimay in Belgium, and uh, my friend, Bubbles, had made himself team manager. And he said, look, I found this guy who's actually willing to drive the car, who's good. And this, he'd been, just been fired by Max Mosley. And uh, I think Max might regret that, or now gone, of course. But, um, and his name was James Hunt, and no-one would give him a job. And I couldn't get anyone to drive for me, so we were very well suited. <laughs> what was... I mean, of course, he's this legendary figure... Um, and, of course, there was the film Crush, I and mean, you, you were all, all featured in a few years ago. What was Hunt like in real life? Hunt was... Everything that you saw is what you got. Uh, you got... <clears throat> he was very English. Um, he, he was articulate. There he is. But, and skilled, and a terrific sportsman. And he had... He, you know, he played squash for his county... I think he played, he was uh, uh, in the second 11 for cricket um, for his county. And he was, he had, he had eyeball coordination. He had the talent that makes great sportsmen. And he wanted to do it in cars. And he paid a terrible price for it because he hadn't made any money. He had nothing. He was in a rented basement, one bedroom flat in Earl's Court Square. And it was tough. And um, he drove for me, and he made no money driving for me because, basically, I said, look, James, um, I shouldn't be here, particularly when we got to Formula One. That was yeah. a complete accident. It was only because we'd gone into Formula Two, and I bought the wrong car. And I said, well, this is quite expensive now, and we're going to go nowhere. <laughs> and then we had a terrible scene in um, Hockenheim where the German crowd booed him quite wrongly. So he got out of the car and gave them a Heil Hitler salute. They went mad. We had to escape back to this country. And I said, well, I think there's no point going on in Formula 2 because we got the wrong car in the wrong year and, most importantly, with the wrong engine. And uh, <clears throat> so we went to Formula 1. It was a case of no hiding place. And whatever the money um, 
that he was not earning and you were spending. I mean, this lifestyle, the, the Hesketh racing lifestyle, was quite something, wasn't it? Uh, I'll tell you what, I think two things about it. Um, we were much, much younger. I was 22 years old. James was 25. Bumbles was 27. He was a grown-up. Yeah. All these other guys, you know, were legends. Um, you know, Colin Chapman was a lot older than me. Ken Terrell was a lot older than me. Um, the guy who ran uh, McLaren, uh, Teddy Mayer, was a lot older than me. And the greatest man of them all, the Commandant Tory, was a lot, lot older than me. <laughs> but funny enough, he was more impressed by Hesketh Racing than anyone else was. It's described here that with relaxation taking place offshore on Hesketh's 162-foot yacht, Southern Breeze... Rented. ...which was suitably... <laughs> he doesn't say that here, but I believe you. But it does say, which was suitably well-stocked with champagne and good-looking women. That is correct. <laughs> and this is what Hunt... Uh, Hunt's leg I mean, he's legendary, isn't he, for his good looks, his charm, his way with women. Would, it, would he be considered acceptable today? Well... Do you know what? There's so much that's considered unacceptable today, which I think is itself unacceptable. I think that, that we live in an age of Cromwellian nonsense, and luckily it will pass, because mm. it can't go on like this. Um, <clears throat> you've got to remember that at that time, if you were a Grand Prix driver, you lived in a world where your chances of living were not very high. Um, if you look at the visitor's book of my house, uh, you will see that more than half the people who came to stay with me to race at Silverstone did not get beyond my 30th birthday. And it is in the light of that that these guys lived in a spirit which, I'm afraid, modern Formula One is just not exposed to that kind of level of risk. And so mm. it was a very different world. Almost like being wartime fighter pilots, that sort of mentality. I think they're much closer to that. Yeah. Because, you know, the, 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 the losses would, were very high. And <clears throat> the cars are much safer. It's a great tribute to what has happened, of how much safer it's become, because they're no slower. But the fact was that um, it was dangerous. It wasn't as dangerous as it had been 20 years before that. Mm. But it's evolutionary. It's like an awful lot of things. You can't change it overnight. And, of course, I know that, you know, the big teams probably look down upon you, but it must have felt pretty cool when you won that Grand Prix. Um, I think uh, it, was, it was the end of a long slog. We'd led a lot of races that year, and uh, so we'd been waiting for it for a long time. Mm -hmm. And also, I knew I couldn't afford to carry on. And the most difficult thing, which is very hard to understand today, is that I had several meetings with big sponsors, people like Texaco and Philip Morris. And this is 1975. And both occasions were in New York. And they said, we really love the team. We love James. We would like it to be a two-car team. I understood that. And we were talking a level of expenditure greater than the budget I could have ever afforded. But they said, well, there is one problem. You guys are too famous. Now, that shows you, 50 years ago, being a celebrity was a severe financial disadvantage. It's the opposite but now. It is. Yeah. 
But that, that shows you how the world's changed. How interesting. Well, uh, look, you know what? You did it. It's a remarkable thing. It's a legacy all these years on that people who love motor racing remember fondly. Um, strange to have gone from all of that to politics. I mean, you know, you had a seat in the House of Lords that you could have taken at any time, but you didn't do that, did you, in the early days? Well, I took it and uh, I took one look and I bolted. But then I met Bernie and then I went back. <laughs> and what about Mrs Thatcher's influence on you? Well, I, th I think I'm like a lot of people. I was um, <clears throat> in my 20s when I went to America. And when Mrs. Thatcher got the leadership of the Conservative Party, as far as I was concerned, you know, here was the first real hope that was contemporaneous and was the future. You know, and I went out and I went and knocked and canvassed and went door to door for her. And um, many years later, she gave me a job, um, to my utter amazement. And uh, it was the greatest privilege I ever had. And she was the greatest person to work for that I've ever met. A lot of people say that. She has, has sort of, there's kind of a harsh exterior, perhaps, that people see looking back at that time. But you found her, as part of her team, you were respected? The only thing she always required, if you made a view uh, to her, she expected you to know what you were talking about. I did see, on a couple of occasions, people making fools themselves, mm. and that's what happens. So she didn't, she didn't suffer fools gladly? No, she no. did not. No. But that, that, that was, I think, why she was respected, too. Now, your role, Alexander, <clears throat> in the whole European story, Britain's relationship with the European economic community, the European community, the European Union, and there you were. You were chief whip at the time of Maastricht, and doing your bit for John Major, doing your bit for the party, and, and look, you know, we can't gloss it over. I mean, you, you, you as much as anybody, stopped there being a referendum on Maastricht, I think. I got on the bill. <laughs> you did. Yeah. You did. Um, but um, the first, before, before the Maastricht bill ever came near us, uh, I, I think I was the first whip who actually went on a political overseas trip because I'd never been to see Brussels. And uh, in this case, actually, Strasbourg. <clears throat> and I went and met the um, MEP Association of Conservative Peers, which was a very different lineup in those days. We're talking whatever it was, um, 90. Early 90s, I guess. Three, yeah. winter of 93. And um, having engaged with them, I came back and I said, look, guys, none of these people must come and speak. Uh, because these will, these will actually drive people. Because this bill, we can get this bill through. But if we start enraging people by telling them how wonderful <laughs> the Europe is, we're going to suddenly find all these famous mythical backwoodsmen that you hear decried yeah, yeah. throughout history about the House of Lords who actually don't really come very much. But this is just exactly <laughs> the kind of behaviour that will accept. Well, they did. And then later on, mm. you decided, and you did something out of principle, which you probably... Um, Received some opprobrium for you. You, you joined UKIP. You joined. I was enormously I grateful that you did, um, and we did it, didn't we? It worked. You did it. Well, I did it because I had people like you helping me. Assisted, me. I might say, by Nick Clegg. 
Yes, and, was... and, and the principles of the Liberal Party. Um, I mean, if you look at it, proportional representation and Nick Clegg were the two greatest assets you had. That's right. Yes, PR in the European election. No, absolutely. Alexander, as you look ahead, Brexit is over. Uh, there's still much to get right. We've got a Prime Minister who's floundering around all over the place. But big picture, looking ahead for this country, how do you see things? I think opportunities are still huge. Um, we've got to get them right. Uh, the three things we've got to fix. Uh, get Brexit right. It's not just the European Court. It's things like making sure that we get out of European data arrangements. Otherwise, there will be no intellectual property for the economy of this country. So there's more to do, but you're bullish looking ahead for Britain. I'm very bullish. Alexander Hesketh, thank you for joining me. Hydro, thank you very Pirates. much. Thank you. We've got a couple of minutes left, so we're now getting some very interesting news from Canada this evening. The Premier for the province of Saskatchewan has announced a firm date for the end of their COVID-19 vaccination passes. From Monday the 14th of Feb, you'll no longer need a vaccine passport in the area. And it comes as up to 500 truckers are still completely blocking Ottawa down, protesting against vaccine mandates. Premier Scott Moe in Saskatchewan says proof of vaccination has been an effective policy, but its effectiveness has run its course. The benefits no longer outweigh the costs. It's time to heal the divisions over vaccination in our families, in our communities and in our province. It's time for proof of vaccination requirements to end. Well, all I can say is here, here to that. Well done, Saskatchewan. And is it interesting that that truckers' protest, which has been a peaceful protest, and I think that's very important, clearly is having an effect, clearly is changing the political weather in Canada. Very interesting. Now, time for a couple of barrage the Farages. Robbie asks, do you think Macron was right to go to Russia to meet Putin? To be sat on the end of a table, to be made to look like a little schoolboy and to come back with nothing. Um, I think Putin gets more out of these things than Western leaders. But then, of course, I'm not saying that I like him uh, on, on a human level. He's a jolly sight cleverer than the other Western leaders. And I've always thought that. Jeff asks me, what's your favourite, your real all-time favourite real ale? Oh, look, there are lots. You know, I come from Kent, so I've got to say Shepherd and Neem's a good beer. I do think Adnams from Suffolk is a particularly good pint. Brian asks, should we hold a referendum on the continuation of the monarchy after the Queen goes. Let's not discuss the Queen going. She's looking fit and well. She's going to be there a long time. What an asset for our country she's been, Alexander, hasn't she? Fantastic. I mean, really, really top, top. I mean, we're very, very lucky as a country to have had the consistency and also the good reason and good humour that she shows when a lot of others could learn from her. Absolutely right. All over the world, they can learn yeah. from it too, I think. Farage at Large is back. I want you to come and join me live. I'll be in Southend on Thursday, February the 17th. Please book your tickets, gbnews.uk. Don't hang around, they'll go fast. <laughs>